You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessing of Allah be upon you all on this fine Thursday morning. Today is the 11th of August, 2022. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on The Voice of Islam. And you're listening to myself, Sharif Banu, and I am joined today in the Betul Futu studio by Brother Asim Hashmi. We will, inshallah, God willing, be with you until 9 a.m. this morning. So please, if you have any questions, remarks, comments that you would like to make, please do not hesitate to contact us on 0208. Eight seven seven eight seven eight, and also on our social media that is Twitter, Instagram at Voice of Islam. As usual, we will we will do um, as we usually do. We will firstly look at the latest news and a little bit of the weather before we move into two very interesting topics and um, some amazing um, guests on the show this morning. The first um, segment that we'll be looking at is euthanasia, should the law in the UK be changed? And after the 8 a.m. break and the news, we will be looking at wildfires and international crisis. So please remember, this is your show, so this is your your radio show. So if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us. Um, Brother Asim, how are you today? Yes, Salaam Alaikum Sharif, how are you doing? Alhamdulillah, by the grace of God, um, surviving the heat, but uh, good, very good. Alhamdulillah, that's that's great. Good. So, um, how are you how are you coping with this the weather that we're having at the moment? Actually, it's it's all right for now, but of course, okay. as we know, the heat wave is coming. So, I'm prepared, like last time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, according to the BBC, today will be a dry, sunny and very warm across much of the UK and hot in parts of the south. However, far northwestern Scotland will be cloudier and cooler with spells of rain gradually edging in. Um, Tonight, we will see a dry and clear for most with the odd patch of mist or fog developing in Northern Ireland and Eastern England. Northwestern Scotland will remain cloudy and some patchy light rain. So we're seeing quite a rise in the temperature in the last few weeks where we had a nice cool period and then we had the the really big heat wave that happened uh, I think 2 to 3 weeks ago now. Yes, absolutely. And now we yeah. and and now we're seeing this other heat wave where we're going to see 30 31 degrees with threats or potential of drought, um, hosepipe ban, water shortage, and all the side effects that happens when we, we have a really dry, hot um, period of, um, of summer. Um, any, any thought on that, Asim? Uh, I mean, uh, w- what can we do, you know? We just got to um, be, be ready for that. Exactly. So yeah. we're seeing more and more of this extreme weather in mm-hmm. the UK and across the world. And I think it's it's quite the topic because we will look at that in in our second segment and how that affects uh, how climate change has affected us and also how that's affecting the environment with um, wildfires. And 
one of the things that I've um, I read last night that was um, interesting is every year around this time of the year in Bristol we have the World um, Balloon Festival, mm-hmm. which is a big um, balloon festival that happens in Bristol over the Clifton Bridge and Ashton Down. And at the end of it, of the three days, um, it's a big festival with music and, and everything. And at the end of three days, they have a massive fireworks and a lot of people use, well, that's the highlight of the show, which is the fireworks at the end of it. And I remember going there with my family to watch the fireworks. And unfortunately, because of the weather and the high risk of wildfires, the um, the organizers have decided that the fireworks will not happen. Oh, oh that, that's so, uh, isn't it? It, it is. And, uh, and because of safety reasons, they've had to cancel it because apparently the grass in, uh, in the park um, that they normally do the fireworks is so dry mm. that risk of wildfire is very high. So that's why this year they've decided to cancel the, um, the fireworks. But in any case, we're very blessed that even with the dry weather, we had a very good Chelsea Solana, even though the grass and everything was very dry compared to last year where it was, it rained and it was very muddy and, uh, and the cars got stuck in the rain, in the mud. But this year it was very good and we had no issues getting in and out, even though it was very dry and dusty this year. Did you have any issues um, in parking and stuff this year? No, no, actually it was, I, I actually had a really good Jalsa Salana because, you know, I think after a long, long time there was no rain, like there was mm. no sign of rain. And parking yes. was really, really easy, as we know that they made uh, really good uh, changes this year. And they were actually prepared for the extreme rain, you know. But Alhamdulillah, mm. it all went well. I actually even got out one day, like within five, ten minutes, which was a miracle for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, it was it was quite an improvement. And I must say, um, the parking system, how organized everything was, mm-hmm. It was it was quite a a sight uh, managing by volunteers having all the cars parked and um, kind of everyone was happy um, going in and out because you know normally there's big delays and issues and everything but after three years we had all what we can class as a normal jalsa what we're used to mm-hmm. and alhamdulillah alhamdulillah by the grace of god it was a very good success and it was good to see huzur again um the caliph and it was good to meet friends and family as normal um asim let's move into the next segment which is the latest news is there anything that caught your eye in yes morning's papers yes absolutely always caught my eye on the energy bills going up before October, um, so energy bills could increase ahead of the expected rise in October, the UK's energy regulator has revealed. Ofgem and industry body Energy UK said it was possible for suppliers to raise customers' direct debits before the new cap on energy prices kicks in. Any rise, any rises would be to help this, uh, spread the cost of higher energy use in the winter months. Ofgem said, households have been warned of sharp rises in energy prices, with average bills forecast to reach four thousand two hundred pounds in twenty twenty three. So it, it, it's therefore possible for direct debits to increase ahead of price cap rise 
or even when customers use has remained constant. However, Ofgem said customers can ask for their excess credit to be returned at any time and can contact their suppliers to change how their direct debit is spread. So this is, of course, another news which um, is shocking. But, uh, you know, it's crazy that you have to pay £4,200 by the start of the next year. So astronomical and mm-hmm. the cost of um, living and everything has gone up so much in the last year it's astounding that the energy prices are there and there was a really good um, segment on Sky News yesterday that compared the UK with the US and um, with the Europe in terms of steps and how much the price rise has gone up in the last um, year or so, like France having a price freeze since 2021, and they're expecting only a 4% rise, whereas we're expecting a 54% rise mm. in the UK. So that's absolutely crazy. And um, there's a really good article in The Guardian this morning where um, Gordon Brown has said that um, you either take control of energy firms that will not cut bills, and he stole that to the PM. And um, The Guardian reports that energy companies that cannot offer lower bills should be temporarily brought into the public ownership. And Gordon Brown has said in a stark challenge to political leaders on the daily trust signal a climb down to help for households. So writing in The the Guardian, Gordon Brown has said call for energy price cap to be cancelled and, and for the government to negotiate lower prices with the companies, comparing the situation to, 20, to the 2009 banking crisis where some banks were temporarily nationalized to protect consumers. So he has warned the times for action was slipping away and major decisions were needed within days. And the time and tide um, wait for no one, neither do crisis. They, they don't take holidays and don't, politely hang fire, certainly not to suit the convenience of a departing PM at the whims of two potential successors. So we can see that even um, our ex-Prime Minister Gordon Brown is hmm. is stating that a decision needs to be made as soon as possible and only decisive action starting this week will rescue people. So everyone is saying that we need to do something in this country to attack, to tackle this problem that we're facing household are not able to pay for their bills and we're seeing even now even before the 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 new rises that's been announced takes place how some households are already indebted to to energy firms and and that they are struggling to to make payments and we've also touched in this on this show um on the um uh, cost of living and how that's affecting people, how people are having to choose between um, heating their homes or feeding their family. And we're going to see more of that as winter approaches. I know that at this time of the year where we're having heat waves and everything, this may not be an issue. But come September, October, November time and we go into the winter, we're going to see more and more people having to choose whether to feed their children or themselves or to heat their home. So that's going to be a very sad um, day for this country when that happens. Yes, absolutely. Uh, also got the news that supermarkets not passing on lower fuel price. RSC says that. The motoring group said that the gap between pump prices and wholesale prices 
was the widest in almost a decade. The price of petrol on Tuesday was about uh, 1.76 per litre, but RAC analysts suggest it should be about £1.62. Fuel prices have hit records high this year but are slowly starting to fall. The RAC says that start of the week, the average petrol price at the big four supermarkets Tesco, Asta, Sainsbury's and Morrison's was 174.4 per litre. Diesel was 186. Meanwhile, the average um, for the delivered wholesale petrol price last week was £1.24, while diesel was 138. After factoring in VAT, fuel duty and a generous retail margin of 10p per litre, the RAC said forecast should soon be selling unleaded for no more than 162. There appears to have been a big shift in the last few months in the behaviour of the four major supermarkets, which dominate UK full retailing, as they are now commonly being undercut by independent retailers they are passing on the wholesale cost saving they are benefiting from um, two drivers at the pump so this unheard of uh, as the supermarkets are normally at least 3p a litre cheaper than the UK average the reason supermarkets are usually cheaper than independent retailers is because uh, they buy fuel more frequently meaning they can react quickly when wholesale price move up or down and mr williams says that uh, was often demonstrated by the speed at which they pass on increases on their forecast when wholesale prices rise so as the supermarkets account for so much of all the fuel sold across the country and they haven't lowered their prices as much as they should have it means average uk prices um, have not come down in line with the significant drop in wholesale fuel, he added. So th- that's uh, news that um, these big four supermarkets are not um, lowering the fuel prices and actually are getting mm. you know more profit out of it. It, it is, and you've you kind of hit the nail, um, the nail on the head here, where they they have um, we've seen. Um, both fuel and um, energy companies making rocket um, um, profit this year. Absolutely, but yeah. those those has not been passed on to the consumer, and it's the consumer that are suffering. Mm. Where fuel prices currently is at one seventy, one eighty, even one ninety in places, and driving back from just Solana this year on the services, some of them even had um, diesel at two pound um, oh, per no, litre. Really? But I must say, I was I was very surprised. I I had a higher car. <clears throat> excuse me. I had a higher car this year for Jalsa, and I had um, I managed to get an electric car. Oh. And it got me to Jalsa Solana with on only a third of the battery. I'm over 130 miles away, and it cost me just over nine pound to charge the car over the whole duration of the weekend and going back and forth between Gloucester and um, and Islamabad, um, Tilford in um, in London. Um, so that was quite surprising to me in terms of, one, the range that I got from the car and two, the cost, because the same journey in petrol would have cost me over £80. Oh so that's nearly God. 10 times in um, in fuel that it did on uh, electric. So I think electric is the future. 
but that's not to come in the in the next two to three years. And I think energy companies and and um, uh, fuel companies will have to do something, and the government will have to step in to help consumers and help us um, kind of cope with the um, cost of living at the moment. On the same line, um, the BBC has got an article this morning where the Ryanair boss, um, O'Leary, says the era of the 10 euro flights is over. I don't know about you, um, Asim, but I've enjoyed those 99p (laughs) or 999 flights in the past where you could get cheap flights from the regional airports like Bristol, Birmingham, Stansted, um, into Europe for 99 pence or 999. But Ryanair says that it won't be offering flights at rock bottom prices anymore thanks to the soaring cost of fuel and the budget airline boss has admitted. The chief executive, Michael O'Leary, says the era of the 10 euro ticket is over. The airline's average fare would rise from around 40 euros, which is about 33 pounds last year, to roughly 50 euros over the next five years, he told the BBC. Um, there, and he goes on further say that there is no doubt that at the lower end of the marketplace, our cheaper, our really cheap promotional fares, i.e. the one euro fares or even the 9.99 euros fares, I think will we, you will not see those fares for the next number of years. Um, Mr. O'Leary told BBC Radio 4's Today's programme, and he goes on to say the rise in fuel costs that is pushing up the fares is also raising household energy bills, eating into people's disposable income. But the airline boss said, despite that, he expects customers to seek out lower cost options rather than cut back on flights. We think people will continue to fly frequently, but I think people are going to become much more price sensitive. And therefore, in uh, my view of life is that people will trade down in their many millions. So we're seeing that not only is it affecting our day to day, but things like our holidays and then the longer term thinking of what we do and how we do it will will change. So with the cost of fuel going up, um, anything anything else caught your eye? Yeah, well, uh, regarding the Ryanair, that it, it's it's very sad, you know. Unfortunately, yeah. I didn't have the chance. To enjoy the 99p or 999. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the cheapest I had was probably around 12 or 13 euros uh, one way, you know. But that, 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 that's, that's still very good. That's still very good. And compared to the other companies, you know, it, it's, it's not matchable at all. So, so I'm, so I'm a bit sad, yeah. <laughs> go on, go on. I said I'm a bit sad because we used to go from Stansted. But um, <laughs> yeah, what, what can we do? It's inflation right <laughs> i i remember when i was at ud i i used to fly for um you know 15 12 15 pound mm-hmm. even 20 pound you know you would and and at the time as a student we used to think that oh 50 pounds is a lot of money yeah but um i i was comparing i was having this conversation yesterday with the family is i have to be in london next week and i've booked myself a train ticket from stroud um to london um, which is an hour and a half, you know, mm-hmm. just under 200, um, 130 miles or so. Yeah. Cost yeah. me 150 pounds. Wow. Retired. That's crazy. Yeah. 
and and it's a work necessity because mm. uh, you know you have to go peak time and, and stuff like that but if you think about it we we were able to fly from you know bristol stansted or anything like that into italy spain portugal for a, a third of that if mm. not less yeah, yeah. I, I i remember one year um i flew to south of france and my parking at Bristol Airport was more than my flight put together. <laughs> that is just astounding. And yeah. but this, um, like um, um, the Ryanair boss says, this era is over now. Well, it was it was bound to come. You know, it was bound to be over. I guess. Yes. Yeah, it is. A- anything else? Uh, yes. Caught your eye? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So latest news that homes for Ukraine. Quota of refugee sponsors do not want to carry on. So what the news is that a quota of sponsors of Ukraine's as part of the Homes for Ukraine scheme do not want to continue the arrangements beyond six months, the Office for National Statistics, which is ONS, has found. So this was launched in March. It has been, uh, you know, it had seen about 75,000 refugees arrive in the UK. So what they do is that sponsors agree to provide accommodation in their own home for a minimum of six months, but are concerns that uh, what will happen when those arrangements reach at the end of that time. So the scheme was set up by the government to help those fleeing Russian invasions of Ukraine and worked alongside the Ukraine family scheme, which allowed refugees to join relatives already living in the UK. The ONS service of homes for Ukraine hosts found 26% want to end their sponsors after six months or less. Six out of ten sponsors said they were happy to accommodate the Ukrainian guests for more than the agreed minimum, which, uh, with almost a quarter saying they would be prepared to continue the arrangements for more than a year. However, almost all sponsors said they uh, they had to provide support and help to the guests that went beyond the official agreement. Um, sponsors currently receive £350 a month, but the survey found 4 in 10 might be prepared to host for longer if there was more financial help. Um, like a refugee, a woman from Ukraine capital Kiev lives in uh, M. S. David's spare room in her London home. She says, "I'm originally from Russia and was devastated by the conflict, so I was very keen to counteract the consequences of the war in a way I could." She said, "Being a sponsor had led to her bills going up, but that was more than covered by the 350 pounds she received each month from the government." Um, she says, "My guest." also buy her own food so the, so the costs are managed but I can imagine for the other households it could be more of an issue so this is one of the news that um, these um, you know sponsors would like to carry on and have these refugees in their home but of course the cost of living has risen and the government government might be thinking into um changing something a bit you know maybe give them a bit more money and some even said we will host them for even more than a year so that was it, it is. This, yeah 
um, it was it was quite um, quite a good initiative in a way to help the Ukrainians, mm-hmm. but I think it was something that was rushed in, and yeah. it, it was done in in quite a rush to get people into the UK and to help in a crisis. And now we're seeing the the side effect of having such a rushed um, proposal and process put in place. And and um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how that continues. And we've seen quite a few in the news over the last few months of how some of them have worked really well, where the families were able to integrate, yeah. especially around areas where there were more Ukrainians of a um, kind of a community around to support those families coming over. Mm-hmm. But we've also seen areas where there were more. Um, um, in solitude and where they've struggled to integrate and and has caused issues into into their uh, in, um, to to get to understand their, their their host family and vice versa. So yeah. always um, always uh, pros and cons of these kind of initiatives in uh, um, in uh, when we, we implement them in such a quick quick way. Yeah. Um, so Sharif, we also have some um, football news. We, oh, we, we can't finish yep. the news without any sports news, as you know, you know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we had this Super Cup, uh, which was actually last night. Um, it was between Real Madrid and Frankfurt. And not surprisingly, Real Madrid, of course, won. Um, Alaba scored in the 37th minute and Benzema scored in the 65th minute. Mm. So Real Madrid won another cup, um, beating Frankfurt 2-0. They said Karim Benzema continued his Ballon d'Or pursuit with a 324th goal for European champion Real Madrid as they beat Eintracht Frankfurt to lift this UFA Super Cup in Helsinki. Um, Carlo Ancelotti's side, who beat Liverpool to win the Champions League in May, took the lead when David Alaba tapped into an empty net with Frankfurt goalkeeper Kevin Trapp stranded following Casemiro's header back to across the goal. Benzema doubled the Spanish Giants' lead after the break with a first-time finish from uh, Vinicius Jr. across to move a second on Real, Real's all-time goal-scoring list, overtaking Raul and behind only Cristiano Ronaldo, who has 450 goals. So that was one news and we also have some um, transfers. So Chelsea are ready to sign Dutch midfield uh, Frankie de Jong, who is aged 25, and a Gabon forward uh, Aubameyang, 33, if Barcelona decide to sell them. Chelsea are also close to agreeing a deal worth more than 80 million euros um, for de Jong. Manchester United have not given up on signing De Jong and are confident he will move to Old Trafford once they resolve the issues of the players' uh, deferred wages with Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona's uh, Spain defender Gerard Pique has offered to play for free in order to help the club meet La Liga's financial fair play rules and register new signings. As we know that Barcelona are not able to register uh, Andreas Christensen and uh, Avery Coast mid, uh, midfielder Frank Cassie um, because of the financial p- uh, fair play because they don't have enough money to sign these players. So Barcelona are trying to 
see where they can raise more money and of course Gerard Pique has given a nice gesture that he will play for free. So these were some of these uh, transfer gossips um, we had today in football. Thank you, Asim. Um, on uh, on the staying on the subject of sport, did you mm-hmm. follow any of the Commonwealth Games this year in Birmingham? Um, I did not follow, but I did see uh, quite a few news that uh, our Pakistan players actually won a few gold medals for the first time, which was actually. Uh, quite interesting and I was very happy to see that but uh, the rest I did not follow no <laughs> yeah so Pakistan won two gold medal three silver and three bronze taking them to eight and um, medals in total what's interesting for me is um, Mauritius won three bronze and three silver and two silver medals oh nice that's nice oh, sorry three silver and two bronze mm-hmm so so yeah, it was it was quite interesting, quite good. I followed I dipped in and out over the, the week or or two that it was happening in Birmingham um, just to follow because it's not far from me. Mm-hmm. But what's really good to see is that England did really well. We finished second of um the st- medal standing with hundred and seventy six medals. Wow, um just great. two down from Australia who had hundred and seventy eight medals mm-hmm. and uh, and Canada and third place with ninety two medals. So England and Australia did really well, but it's really good to see that um, the other nations like India, New Zealand, Scotland, Nigeria, Wales, all of that, um, kind of Jamaica, Kenya, um, all got a um, decent amount of medals this year. Yeah, but usually usually USA and China get, you know, first and second in these um, kind in, of competitions. In, in those kind of competition, yeah. But in terms of the Commonwealth, um, you know, the Commonwealth countries... England and um, and Australia did really well, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's that time now. So, dear listeners, please stay with us. We're go we're going to go away for a short break, and we will come back into our first segment. So, please join us in a couple of minutes. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. Selections from the writings of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. I look always with wonder at this Arab Prophet, whose name is Muhammad. Thousands of blessings and peace be upon him. How exalted his status was. One cannot perceive the ultimate limit of his station. 
and it is not within the scope of man to fully comprehend the depth and penetration of his ennobling qualities. Alas, due recognition has not been paid to his lofty rank. That unity which had disappeared from the world was restored by this same valiant champion. He loved God most intensely. So also his soul was being consumed in deep sympathy for mankind. That is why God, who was fully aware of the hidden excellences of his heart, exalted him above all the prophets and all the people of the past and the future and fulfilled his heart's desires in the span of his lifetime. Storm clouds forwarding us of a third world war are getting heavier by the day. The effects of such a war would last for decades to come. Generation after generation of children would more than likely be born crippled or with genetic defects due to the lasting effect of the radiation. Thus, it is the urgent need of the time for mankind to work towards safeguarding our future. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Dear listeners, welcome back to The Breakfast Show with myself, Sharif Banu, and Asim Hashmi in our Battlefield Mosque. We are now going to move um, on to our first segment, which is euthanasia, should the law in the UK be changed? So, Asim, can you tell us a bit more about the the story? Yes, so the gist of the story is that a couple, uh, Diana and Graham Mansfield, um, who have been married for almost 40 years, entered into a suicide pact when Diana was diagnosed with cancer. Diana asked her husband to kill her, to stop her from a prolonged life of suffering. They were a loving couple and cared for each other greatly. It's it's a really sad but interesting story and, and something that would probably affect all of us at some point or the other when it comes to the end of our um, partners or our wives or, or husbands. So... Um, this is going to be we're going to be discussing that with a few guests this morning and we will have them on the line in shortly but in um, in um, in terms of the topic itself it's a very difficult topic to, to, to kind of discuss on a morning show but we will try to do our best but dear listeners if you would like to join us um, with your thoughts comments or remarks please do not hesitate to contact us on 0208-687-7878. And also you can tweet us or on our Instagram page at Voice of Islam. So, Asim, have you, have you ever thought about euthanasia and what are your, what do you, um, your belief on it? Well, um, you know, the bond between uh, <coughs> husband and wife, it's it's like a sanctity of marriage. Um, if you listen, uh, if you read in the Quran, um, in the chapter two, verse hundred and eighty-eight, um, it says they are garment for you, and you are garment for them. 
you know, the beautiful teaching from the Holy Quran and discusses the closeness between husband and wife, as well as the gentleness and respectful and protective nature uh, of the relationship. So, for example, supporting each other and, you know, through thick and thin. So... It is. It is yeah. quite interesting, and mm. we are um, we're privileged today um, this morning to have our first guest with us, um, Nathan Stillwell. Um, Nathan, alaikum, peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Thank you very much for having me on the show, um, Nathan. You're, um, you're Nathan Stillwell is the assisted dying campaigner for Humanist UK. Um, he campaigns to give a voice to the terminally ill and people who are incurably, intolerably suffering in order to change the law in England and Wales. Nathan concurrently works for the assisted dying campaign group My Death, My Decision. So, um, Nathan, um, we'll, I'll go straight in into our first question for the purpose of our listeners, could you please tell us about humanism and what it means to you and how, um, how, and could you also tell us about the organization? Sure, absolutely. So humanism is a non-religious worldview. So that means it's a way of looking at the world through science, through reason, through empathy. So humanists trust the scientific methods and we use it to try and understand how the universe works. We reject supernatural and ideas of, of faith, and we make decisions based on, on reason, on compassion, and on concern for other human beings. So what's quite interesting about this is we, we don't have a founder, we don't have a universal leader or a prophet, or a rule book or a scripture or anything like that. We all base our reasonings around other human beings and this idea of, of social responsibility. So for me, really, it's just about trying to live on a personal level, just trying to live my best life. So that's a life based on evidence around the, about the world around me. And it's my life is trying to make the world a better place for the other humans on this earth. For me, life is something that's about choice. It's about personality. It's about consciousness. So it's not something that's directed or, or given by, by a, a god or a, or a, or a higher, higher being, essentially. So Humanist UK, the organization, we do, we do quite a lot actually, and quite broad work. We can help, we do weddings and wedding ceremonies, we do funeral ceremonies, and we even do pastoral care in prisons, which is something that's normally done by um, a Christian priest. But today I guess we'll be discussing our campaign work, which overall can be summarized as, as we want the UK to be more secular. And that means we understand and respect all religions, but we don't particularly want religion to play a role in our politics or our education. Thank that, you very much. That's, that's uh, very interesting. If if I may, um, Nathan, sure. what um, so what do you see the biggest um, divide that happens between religion and politics, or or in our society? So I don't how. So, go on, go on, sorry. Well, no, um, it's a really interesting question. I think British politics has been defined by uh, mainly the, you know, the Christian religion and the Church of England for, for a, a long period of time. And so that can mean that some things are kind of left in our, our, our laws and our politics from, from, you know, from people who have been dead for, 
for centuries, essentially. And there's a lot of aspects that people, you know, everyday people might not know. For example, we have um, bishops in, in the House of Lords, and a lot yes. of our lords kind of, you know, originally be based off of um, kind of Christian Christian scripture. So, so that's the main aspect of where where we talk about becoming more more secular. It's just looking at a lot of these laws and systems and politics and education and looking at what's best for the multicultural and multi-faith society mm-hmm. that we have right now. So I think that the best way to kind of respect the fact that we have many different religions and many different worldviews and faiths in the UK is to remove the religious aspect away from politics and education. So it's all about the individual, you know, it's you and who's making a choice about your religion and your politics. That, that's really interesting. It's that whole separation of church and state kind of element to it. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by that. So um, I'm sure we'll touch on that again. Um, Asif, sorry, you had a question. Yes, absolutely. So, Nathan, my question is that what is the difference between euthanasia and assisted dying? Sure. So very, very broadly, they're very similar. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're essentially the same thing. It's, it's actually a quite a small technical difference. So, so voluntary euthanasia is the act of intentionally ending someone's life with their consent. So in what we're talking about today, that's people who are terminally ill or incurably or intolerably suffering. Now, assisted dying is very uh, slightly different because it includes the act of ending someone else's life, but it can also mean ending your own life. So that can be by taking, you, know, you might be prescribed life-ending drugs by a doctor, mm-hmm. which you take yourself. So it's, it's a small very small difference between ending someone else's life or ending someone else's life and your life as well. So I, I prefer the term assisted dying because I think when we use that term, it, there's this understanding of taking control of your own death and making choices at the end of your life. I think assisted dying is all about saying, look, this is my death and therefore it, it's my decision. And, and that personal aspect is quite important. I think it, at the moment, as we've already said, this is something that's decided by the government when I think it should be decided on a personal level. So, so in the UK, assisting someone to die, so assisted dying, is illegal. So if you were to help someone to, to die or to help someone, for example, to go to Switzerland, which is quite famously, you know, people go to Switzerland for an assisted death, you, if you assist someone with that, you could end up with 14 years in jail. That's um, that's that's really really interesting. And um, as a humanist, and with the organisation that you work for, what is your belief regarding euthanasia, and do you support it? And if so, why? Well, yeah. So Humanist UK supports it. We would like to see assisted dying legalised for people in the UK who are incurably intolerably suffering. So that would include people with terminal cancer or, for example, someone with motor neuron disease or Huntington's. And one of the people that Humanist UK supported who campaigned to change the law was a man named Tony Nicklinson. So he died nearly uh, a decade ago and he suffered from locked-in syndrome, meaning he could only move his eyes and his head. He suffered in pain and also suffered from indignity. And he said it himself, he'd made, you know, the, the mentally capable decision that this wasn't the life that he chose. And he wanted to end his life on his terms. And he was, deli- he was denied that, that right by, by the government, essentially. And I think on a personal level, that's why I 
wholeheartedly support assisted dying. I really struggle to think as a society that we can force people to live in pain and, and suffering without any dignity, especially mm. after they've made the decision in their minds that they want to die. And I really, really struggle about thinking about how heartbroken I would be if one of my friends or, or family members was in a situation like Tony's and they'd made that choice, they were in pain and they wanted to end their lives and they couldn't. And I really struggle to, to be able to think about that because it, it, it's heartbreaking. So for me, the, the whole campaign is about empathy. You know, it's about putting yourself in other people's shoes and imagining what they, they must feel like. And I think that's why I'd like um, assisted dying to be legalized in the UK. Um, it's that's that's really interesting, Nathan. And and one of the things is the whole um, ethical element and moral element that you kind of touched on. Um, and uh, reading into this, one of the things that comes up um, is how do we uh, ensure that such a law that if legalized is not abused by the families where you know, um, the patient itself is unable to control their own, um, you know, the end of life, the palliative care that we can give them, and they choose to abuse that to, for financial gain or other gain, because we know that um, if you look at um, how the support system needs to be to support someone to end of life, can be quite it's a, a drain and a strain on families, not only financially, but morally, uh, physically, and emotionally. So what's your opinion on that, on the, um, if, you, if you put yourself in um, the other person's shoe where a lot of people are against euthanasia and um, assisted dying. So what would you say to the whole ethical um, objection to it? Yeah, I, I think the law, if we were to have a law in England and Wales, we'd have to make sure that, it, that it, there were lots of safeguards and it would, it would be incredibly safe. And we can look at other countries now. So, so England and Wales are actually behind lots of different countries now. There's over 370 million people in the world who have, who have access to you know, assisted dying, who live in, live in countries where it's legal. So we can look at countries like like Canada and um, Austria and New Zealand, and we can look at at what it's like there, and we can you know make it as as safe as it could possibly be. But I think something that I'd like to bring up here is the fact that at the moment, because we have no law, we have no safeguards. That there's there's no checks and balances at, at mm. all. So when you talk about you know a family being able to coerce someone to have an assisted death, well they're capable of doing that that right now, and there, there's no checks and there's no there's no balances. One of the safeguards that we'd like to see introduced is um, being you know being able to talk about this to your doctor and having two separate um, medical professionals or two two separate people who would have to you know sign off that this person wants an assisted death. Well, right now, because we don't have that, there are no safeguards. So the, what we've got is actually it, it, it is a worse situation than if we introduced a law. And another thing to, to bring up here is this, this idea of um, the fact that people can go to, to Switzerland for an assisted death. Mm. The, the element of that, of course, is, well, now we've outsourced our compassion and our empathy to Switzerland. And we've also outsourced our safety measures. You know, it's the Swiss government that are choosing these safety measures. So if we were to have a law in the UK, we'd actually be taking back control 
of the safety of, of the, these people who are at the end of the end of their lives. So yeah, so I I, I think definitely the the law that needs to be introduced in the UK, in England and Wales needs to have lots of checks and balances to make sure it's safe. But at the moment, we've got the worst system where the law really is broken and we're not helping these people at the end of their life. It is. And in in your opinion, is there any line that needs to be drawn in terms of where the law should or um, what it should look at and how, how it should be applied? So I think that's, you know that's the, that's the job of politicians. Essentially, is that you know their their full time job is to to stand on the line, you know, and choose where it should be. And one of the things that we've called for is an inquiry. So we'd like politicians to look at assisted dying. We'd like them to to look at the evidence in in Canada, in Austria, in all of these places in Switzerland. Look at what laws are working and bring those laws to the UK. Look at how it would work and how it would work in a in a particularly English context. And they'd be able to look at the evidence. They'd be able to look at the story of people like Tony's that we've discussed, and look at the you know the the state of of, of, of doctors and nurses and palliative care. And I think an inquiry would be the best way for us to be able to determine this line. But essentially, also, it, 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 there's an element of, of again, it's 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 personal choice. It's you who decides when your life reaches a point where the quality of your life isn't what you believe um, it should be. And so that that's why Humanist UK are advocating for a law that's for people who are incurably, intolerably suffering. And and that's mm. the criteria: is, is that it's definitely incurable. Their, their quality of life and the, the pain and the suffering is something that they've chosen, that, that they have said that is not acceptable for them. And they're the ones making the final decisions about the end of their life. Um, Nathan, this has been very enlightening. And thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with us this morning. I wish you all the best and may the peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the thank show. You. Um, dear listeners, you're listening to The Breakfast Show. Um, we're discussing a um, very interesting topic this morning, um, euthanasia, should it be legalized in the UK. Um, we have our next guest on the line, um, Murabi Farooq Arshad. Um, he's a missionary graduated from Jamia Ahmadiyya um, in 2016, and after serving some time in Liberia, Pakistan, and Spain, he was finally um, posted to the Central Department for Life Devotees in London. Um, Murabi Saab, thank you for joining us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa Peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. No problem. Um, can you, um, I'll jump into our first question. Can you sympathize with someone who, um, for wanting to end their life? Um, so, uh, it's, a very, it's a very good and sensitive question. Um, as you know, um, we have to uh, bear, uh, because obviously uh, we as uh, Muslims, we have to see um, what um, our our religion or any religion teaches us in regards to um, the, the fundamental teachings regarding these topics. 
So I, I will just speak about um, what Islam says and does it, if Islam sympathizes or not. So um, there was a, a similar scenario at the time of the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where he said that um, amongst the nations before you, there was a man who got a wound uh, whilst in a, in, in, in a battle and growing impatient with his pain, he took a knife and cut his hand off, which was injured. And uh, and that, uh, all in all, caused him to, to die. And Allah said um, that uh, he hurried himself into, into taking his life, and upon that he made uh, the, the, the hellfire incumbent on him. Uh, and this is in, in the book of Hadith of Bukhari, which is known as the most um, superior out of the six authentic books of narrations of the Holy Prophet. Um, so, you know, see, in, in, in Islam, it, it doesn't provide any justification for euthanasia um, uh, as a whole. The reason for this is because according to the Holy Quran, Human life is not our possession. It belongs mm. to God alone. Mm. And the concept of a life not worthy of living does not exist in Islam. God has ordained for human life to be respected unconditionally and no amount of temporary human suffering is allowed to interfere with the sanctity of human life. And according to this, uh, God Almighty has stated in the Holy Quran in chapter 6, verse 152, that kill not the life which God has made sacred. And uh, and talking about the suffering, and should someone take his own life or uh, get assisted death according to his, his suffering, Islam uh, says that suffering can be relieved to a degree by medicine and other means. If a person cannot be relieved beyond that, then the suffering becomes a mean of forgiveness for his sins. And we see this in the traditions of the Holy Prophet, where he has said that if one of my believers, because uh, God Almighty has said that if one of my believers was to be even put by a phone whilst walking mm. in the way of God or, or in the way of religion, it becomes a mean of of his sins being forgiven and in the Holy Quran as well he, he says that um, my, my believers will be trialed with financial problems by by health problems by children as well so whenever these come um, as a result the, the believer says that to Allah we believe belong and to Allah will be returned uh, which goes to say in conclusion that our life only belongs to Allah, uh, the God Almighty, and it is up to God Almighty um, when He gives us or when He causes us to die. So, um, Murabi Farouk, uh, thank you for that. We're just um, very conscious of time and we're approaching the 8 o'clock um, news break. So please stay with us and we will continue our interview after the news break. And dear listeners, uh, please stay tuned with us and we will be back with you shortly after a small break for the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, 
Dear listeners, welcome back to The Breakfast Show. You're listening to myself, Sharif Banu, and Asim Hashmi, who's in our Betul Futu Mosque in London. We are joined this morning with Murabi Farooq Arshad, where we're continuing our first segment um, on euthanasia, should the law in the UK be changed. Murabi Farooq, um, welcome back to the show. So um, the second, let's get, we'll continue straight into it. What do you think the effects of euthanasia might be for the family left behind? Uh, so, just as a whole, um, either by a natural cause or, or, in this case, assisted death or, or, or euthanasia, and it holds a great impact for for for, for the family or for for, for its um, successes. Uh, um, not only physical uh, and also emotional and moral um, uh, there's problems there especially um, if we see if, they are, if, we, if we leave the young children behind they will have a huge impact on their minds as well but talking about um, euthanasia um, because it's an assisted death topic where, where the person um, asks to be relieved from its pain by, by causing them to die. Uh, the, the people who, who will be leaving behind, or, or she will be leaving behind, um, will be affected in that sense that they, they, they could have done much more to help him or her in other means. As you know, um, in, in, in Islam, uh, God Almighty is known to be the, the healer of of uh, diseases, and he has said that there's no disease in the world uh, where the, where he hasn't made any cure for it. It's just a matter that uh, people haven't found it yet. Uh, I.e., cancer. That there's some cancer which hasn't been um, found for cure yet. Um, so the people will be greatly affected because of the emotions of the deceased, um, as you know. The, the Britain is trying to make it uh, legalized in, in the UK. Um, it's not done yet, but in the in the future, um, it, it might hold a great impact. Exactly. So, uh, so do you think euthanasia should be legalized in the UK? Um, see, we enjoyed the society of Britain as being an ethnical um, cohesion country where there is. Uh, many people of different ethnical backgrounds and there's different religions are free to practice what they, they believe in mm. this country. Mm-hmm. And living in such society and, and in such times where these sensitive matters are arising, where new laws are being um, sanctioned uh, to, be, to be legal to practice, and um, we as Muslims uh, should um, just bear our, our our fundamental and core teachings in mind. That what does Islam say? Um, if we talk about Christianity, what does the Bible say? Or what the, the Gospels or what does the, the, the Vedas say? And 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 go about um, uh, about following those teachings and bearing those fundamental teachings in mind as well. Um, and not to be carried away in such um, decisions and not to hurry into these decisions. 
Um, and yeah, this is what I would say that in my opinion, uh, we really should keep our religious um, beliefs and our religious um, sanctities in mind when coming to these decisions. Jazakallah, Murabi Farooq Arshad, for your time this morning, and we wish you all the best, and may the peace and blessing be with you um, on this Thursday morning. Jazakallah for having me, and peace be upon you, um, dear listeners, um, we have we now have our third guest on the line, Alistair Thompson. Alistair, Tom- Alistair, welcome to the breakfast show, and peace and blessing of Allah be upon you, and peace with be with you. Um, Al- Alistair Thompson is a spokesman for Care Not Killing, an alliance of organisation that oppose euthanasia and assisted suicide, and campaigns for better palliative care. So, Alistair, for the purpose of our listeners. Could you please tell us about the organization Care Not Killing organization? Yes, indeed. So we're, we're a group of uh, 40 different organizations uh, that cover uh, everything from uh, doctors and nurses groups to disability rights organizations um, to those people of faith, uh, and that's all faiths and none, uh, and uh, also people from the legal profession. And we, we came together uh, many years ago when uh, Lord Joffe tried to change the law and legalise assisted suicide. And ever since then, we have been campaigning uh, to stop assisted suicide and euthanasia being legalised in, in the UK uh, because we know that it, it would be an incredibly dangerous change to the legislation that would put pressure on vulnerable people uh, to end their lives. Um, thank you, um, Alistair. In terms of, um, could you uh, please elaborate on your role in the organisation? So I am uh, a press spokesperson, uh, so I look after communications and uh, talking to, to journalists and briefing them uh, about the issues that surround assisted suicide and euthanasia. So, for example, I will highlight reports that appear in other countries um, such as in the, the US states of Oregon and Washington which have assisted suicide systems uh, year in year out reports are produced by the state authorities which show that the majority of those ending their lives uh, in those two states cite fear of being a burden as a reason for them taking that decision or indeed looking at highlighting some of the quite terrible and shocking practices that we see in places like Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, which had euthanasia systems uh, where we see um, a system that was developed for mentally competent terminal adults being extended to people with disabilities, to non-mentally competent adults, uh, and most recently, which has been extended to, to children, uh, and Peter, people with mental health problems. Thank you very much, Alistair. So my question is that um, what is you and your organization's opinion on the legalization of euthanasia in the UK? So we are fundamentally opposed uh, to the legalization of assisted suicide and euthanasia because we know that it would put huge pressure on vulnerable people hmm. uh, to end their lives prematurely. We can see this in all the other jurisdictions that have gone down this route. Um, Probably the most recent example of a sizable country is Canada, 
which has legalized uh, euthanasia. Uh, in just a few years, their system was introduced only in 2016. We've seen a rapid growth in the number of people being euthanized. We have seen safeguards being stripped away. So now you no longer have to be terminally ill, uh, but they are looking at uh, euthanizing people for mental health problems. Uh, and during the COVID pandemic, one of the really chilling statistics that came out of Canada uh, was 1,400, that's 1,400 people who were euthanized cited loneliness as a reason for their decision. And so we say what we should be doing in the UK is focusing on getting very good, high-quality palliative care. Uh, so that's not just medical treatment, but also good quality social care and dealing with um, any concerns and mental health problems around terminal diagnosis uh, and making sure we, we treat people rather than trying to kill them. Um, Alistair, this has been very enlightening. Thank you for your time and may Allah bless you and peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. And peace be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair. Um, dear listeners, we are approaching the end of the first segment, but before we finish, I would like to end um, this segment by a small clip by His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who was asked to share the Islamic view on euthanasia. And in this clip, um, His Holiness talks about the sanctity of life and why, therefore, euthanasia is prohibited. But I'll let you... Uh, my dear listeners, listen to him um, firsthand. You see, according to the Holy Quran, life is not our possession. We do not own life. And the sanctity of life is so important that temporary stray suffering must not be permitted to interfere with the inviolable principle of sanctity of life. 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 So, if once you begin to give right to people to take either their own life on the excuse that they are suffering or to take somebody else's life mm -hmm. because that person is suffering and says, all right, you can take my life. Once it begins, there will be no end to it. Then other things will follow. And all the sanctity of the life we fully, strictly impose here in our laws, man-made laws as well, will go overboard. It will be, you know, result in chaos. The question is, suffering can be relieved to a degree by man through drugs and other things. If you can't relieve a person beyond that, then Suffering is a means of bringing death. Now, let God do it by His law. A few moments more or a few moments less, less do not matter as compared to the price you have to pay once you begin to take the sins into your own hands. So, if the suffering increases, that suffering also causes unconsciousness. Because the threshold of different people is different, so in some cases it doesn't happen so quickly as you expect or 
they don't happen so as quickly as in some other piece of people's cases. So this is again another dilemma. The problem we face doesn't seem to have any solution because people's threshold of suffering, or tolerance of suffering changes. Some people at the slightest pain, you know, they kick a shindy about it and say, raise the whole, you know, Pardon? Raise the roof. The roof, yes, right. The raise the roof. Or, you know, in Urdu, we say the, to raise the the heavens. So <laughs> we didn't have roofs. I, I was undecided between the two. That's why I hesitated. And uh, at least the kekeshinti, if nothing else, if not the roof. While some suffer so patiently to such a degree that. It's unbelievable. Only when you go through that experience yourself, then you know how the disease was was uh, punishing. So it all depends. Now, whom will you permit at what level? How will you know? The inside story. How can you project yourself into the mind of a person and judge really this is be gone, this has gone beyond the normal level of suffering? So we shouldn't interfere in these things. Also, maybe some people suffer as a result of, you know, this is God punishing them, maybe. I mean, sometimes suffering is not ah, meant to be pain. You, you mean those who watch them, they suffer? Well, is it, yeah, maybe... maybe is it to relieve themselves that they kill the others? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> what I mean to say, there's another angle to it as well. Sure, yeah. A mother suffers for the suffering of the child. A... a son suffers for the suffering of his mother, for instance, or a daughter for the suffering of his father. So maybe the attitude is selfish. They want to put the suffering person at rest to have some rest themselves. And these things have happened in real life and they have been recorded in the history of legal battles where some lawyers tried to defend such people because they thought it was done out of mercy for them. But the fact is, it could be the other way around. It could be out of mercy for themselves. You know? <laughs> they wanted to get rid of this nuisance. Yeah. So things become further complicated when you start to look at it from the, different, from the other angle as well. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Dear listeners, you're listening to Voice of Islam on this Thursday morning of 11th of August 2022 with myself, Sharif Banu, and John from the studio in Betul Fatu, the, um, the House of Victory, um, Asim Hashmi. Um, what a beautiful way to end the first segment by the words of His Holiness, um, Hazrat Mizzah Tahir Ahmed. And we're now time for us to move on into our second segment, uh, Wildfires and International Crisis. So, Asim, can you just um, briefly give us the gist of the story? Yes, absolutely. So, um, in the southwest region of France, in a place called uh, Arachon, more than 1,200 firefighters have been tackling blazes. They have devoured more than 10,000 hectares 
<coughs> sorry. Uh, since last Tuesday, said France 24, an international news channel that broadcasts 24-7, climbers have been advised to postpone their trips to the French Alps as exceptional climate conditions have caused repeated rock falls. A climate scientist, Dr. Eunice Law, told the BBC that rising temperatures are a signature of climate change, with heat waves becoming more common and lasting longer. Due to rising global temperatures, 30 miles from Yosemite National Park began on Friday as a 60-acre blaze in remote mountains. But by Saturday night, it reached nearly 12,000 acres and are destroying in excess of uh, 2,500 buildings. Late Saturday, um, the fire was 0% contained, fire officials reported. So that's that's an ever increasing threat that we we are facing here mm, in, in Europe yeah. at the moment, and we are pleased um, this morning to have our first guest for this segment, Joanne Smith. Joanne, welcome to the breakfast show. May the peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Thank you very much, and good morning to you. Good morning, Joanne um, is the assistant commissioner for the London Fire Brigade stations. Um, Joanne, before we, we move on and go to our question, could you, for the purpose of our listeners, can you just explain to us what are wildfires and how do they come about? So just in terms of the conditions that we're experiencing um, across the country at the moment with the exceptional fire risk and because the grass is known as tinderbox dry, we've had little rain uh, for the past six months. Uh, the conditions that that creates means that uh, the smallest spark can start a blaze, uh, which could cause some devastation. We've seen that with the winds as well, which is why we are urging uh, the public really to work with us, to be very careful and vigilant, make sure your cigarettes are extinguished. And we have also been campaigning to reduce the sale of disposable barbecues, um, and don't have those in public parks and spaces because once uh, a fire takes hold, it is hard to extinguish um, and because of the conditions, it just makes it difficult to tackle and it can cause and lead to devastation. So we're seeing that in the world at the moment, wildfires are increasing and um, we're starting to see more in the UK. In the last few years, it's been on the news in America, in Europe, we've seen it, but not so much in the UK. How how serious is um, is um, do you think the situation is for the planet and in the UK? It's fair to say that I think fire services nationally have noticed an increase in incidents, and response to calls for help uh, with weather-related conditions. So that's anything from flooding to the recent wildfires we've received. So it's very serious, but we want to reassure everybody that we do have plans in place, that we are still available. Um, and particularly a, a message for all your listeners that if you do see a fire, please call us and report it. Please, if you have the time, take some time to know your location because our control officers may ask you some different questions and, and try and pinpoint your location to make sure it's a fire that we are not attending so we can get to that fire quickly and extinguish it. Um, thank you for that. And do you think, um, do you feel that we, 
we have enough adequate resource and technology to deal with the rise in wildfires? And if not, how do you think this can be improved? We, in London Fire Brigade Control Room, have been using technology quite frequently. Uh, and if, you, one of, if some of your callers have ever had dialed 999, uh, we now are able to send a link to a caller's mobile phone so they can send us video footage or send us an image of the fire. Now, this makes us much more proactive in our response, makes us be able to send more fire engines and a heavier weight of attack to the incident uh, and that means we can extinguish it quicker uh, and stop the devastation that we've seen during the last heat wave. Um, interesting. It's it's good to it's good to hear that there are we're using technology and how we're it's being applied to tackle this. How different is your approach to tackling domestic fires in comparison to wildfires? Uh, that's very different. Um, although we are trained to tackle grass fires and domestic fires in buildings as well. But firefighters and control staff over this period have been working incredibly hard. Uh, we have the resources in place. We have asked for additional resources over this heatwave period. So we're fully prepared um, and we have the right equipment and right training to tackle the wildfires. And... Um and lastly, um, Joanne, what safety advice would you give to members of the public in this respect of wildfires? So our message we're urging the public is just to take care when you're having fun in the sun uh, and just follow the advice. Make sure cigarettes are properly extinguished. Uh, do not barbecue on balconies uh, just because the wind may carry off smouldering ashes. We're urging people not to have barbecues in parks and public spaces because of the risk and the tinderbox dry conditions. When you're enjoying the sun and you're out in water, please heed the fire water safety messages that are available as well. Um, Joanne, in terms of, we're, like you mentioned, we're approaching um, the weekend and a lot of people will want to have a barbecue, will want to do these kind of things, um, um, either at home, but outdoors, you mentioned that in parks and stuff, the advice is not to do that. Is there any any precaution we can take when having a barbecue at home? So I am looking out into my garden at the moment and I can see that the grass has turned like you say, um, grey and dry, brown and dry, and um, it looks like the slightest spark, it will just ignite. So any advice that you can give our listeners? Yes, because we're aware that people will want to have barbecues um, in their gardens. And again, as you've noticed, everyone's experiencing the same conditions with their grass. Um, but just be aware of children and animals that if you're playing games in the garden and a ball that and anything else that may knock over the barbecue, because obviously that will increase the risk of grass fire. And a bucket of water by your barbecue, just to mm. make sure as a precaution would also be good. But if you do need us, we are there for you. Please dial 999. Um, Joanne, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. And I wish you all the best. And may God protect us in these um, hot weather. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. So...
Asim, this is really interesting. We were discussing this morning in the news how the heat wave is mm-hmm. affecting us and how that's going to change the way we see it. And one interesting aspect, I don't know whether it's relative or not, but at the moment I'm blessed to have my parents with us um, here in the UK and they're visiting for the holidays. And my parents used to live in the UK in the 60s and 70s before they moved to Mauritius. Mm-hmm. And one of the things my mum keeps making comments about is when they lived here, they never knew heat like this before. <laughs> yeah. And and it, it, it's really interesting. I, I, I don't know whether that's just anecdotal or whether there is anything in, in it, but it feels like the weather is getting... Um, hotter as we as we moved into the years and last year was was hot this year we've seen a record rise in temperature to 41 degrees in london and now we're seeing prolonged um drought and temperatures you know this week predicting to reach 31 32 degrees we're having um host pipe bans in the uk and everything like that mm. so and wildfires is one of the effect so um in terms of how do wildfires is affected by the climate um so uh, basically uh, you know rising temperatures are as you know as signature of climate change uh, with heat waves becoming you know more common and lasting longer due to rising global temperatures so of course uh, the climate change um, affects a lot you know it's getting more hotter and hotter so there's more chance of fire basically in, in you know in the forest in wherever the trees are or even the grass next to you as you were mentioning <laughs> Exactly, and we're seeing at the moment how Europe is battling those wildfires and how they're struggling, and we've seen it over the years, how in LA in particular, and in America, where those wildfires have been devastating. Mm-hmm. And we it got into the news when celebrities were having to be evacuated from their house, and uh, and um, they they're having to move away from their luxurious house and into other places because of wildfires affecting them um in terms of affecting life how does wildfire affect lives so um basically wildfires disrupts um you know transportation communication even power gas services and of course water supplies uh, wildfires also decrease the quality of air um, you know, cause uh, loss of property, crops, resources, animals, uh, and of course, people. Um, wildfires, all you know, also release significant amount of mercury, <coughs> sorry, into the air, causing impairment of speech, hearing, walking, muscle weakness, and vision problems to people of all ages. So this is actually something new for me that, you know, the quality of air is also really bad and the mercury part is very interesting as well it is it is and uh, what we see is um wildfires affect um wildlife and wildlife cause wildfire causes a lot of disruption to wildlife mm. due to the speed yeah. in which wildfire spreads in the forests 
this causes the species to miss breeding seasons and makes it harder for them to re-establish a secure home for themselves. Wildfires also destroy and contaminate animals' water and food supplies, forcing them to travel to unknown territories and risk their lives to find provisions. So this is quite quite an interesting um, um, area to look into, and uh, we'll we will come back to this topic in a few minutes. Just bear with us while we take a short break, and we will be back with you, dear listeners. Please stay with us. His Holiness, Hazret Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the present head of the community, continues in his effort to unite people from all faiths and cultures by promoting interfaith dialogue and religious freedom. He has traveled extensively to spread the message of peace and to remind everyone to respect the rights of other human beings. During these tours, His Holiness has met world leaders from the Far East to Europe, from North America to Africa discussing the economic, social and political problems facing the world today and how to create peace and justice in the world. He has also met religious and community leaders in order to share common values and core ideals universal to all religions and cultures with a view to improving the moral state of mankind and creating an atmosphere of love and affection. From young to old, he compassionately listens to the ordinary man, regardless of race, color, or religion. He has personally initiated social projects and schemes to alleviate poverty and human suffering. His concern is not just about the well-being and moral state of the members of the Ahmadiyya community, but of the great human suffering of mankind at large. The Ahmadiyya community knows only that Islam, which is the Islam of love and affection, offers a real message of peace and security. Selections from the writings of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. Take note how the Holy Prophet of Islam remained resolute and steadfast in his claim to prophethood from beginning to end, in the face of thousands of dangers and a multitude of enemies and threatening opponents. For years on end, he endures such hardship and suffering as increased from day to day, enough to make one despair of success. It is inconceivable for a man with worldly motives to have shown such prolonged endurance and steadfastness. Not only that, by putting forth his claim to prophethood, he even lost the support he had previously enjoyed. The price he had to pay for his one claim was to confront a hundred thousand contentions and invite a multitude of calamities to befall upon his head. He was exiled from his homeland, pursued with intent to murder. His home and belongings were destroyed. Several attempts on his life were made by poisoning. Those who were his well-wishers began to harbour ill for him. Friends turned into foes. For an age which seemed eternity, he braved such hardships, which are beyond a pretender and imposter to suffer through. Assalamu alaikum, peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Dear listeners, welcome back to The Breakfast Show. We are now Thursday, the 11th of August, 8, 8.33 in the morning. You're listening to myself, Sharif Banu, and joined today with Asim Hashmi from the Betul Fatu Mosque in Morden. 
Um, we're discussing quite an interesting topic, which is the wildfires and its impact on um, and the international crisis. So, Asim, where else in the world um, have are we seeing a rise in um, wildfires? Yes, Sharif, absolutely. So, in Canada, um, you know, in Canadian province declares emergency amid worst wildfires in over 50 years. Officials in Canada, easternmost province, have issued a state of emergency as crews battle the worst wildfires the region has experienced is in more than half a century. As sprawling blazes have consumed thousands of hectares of forest in Newfoundland and Labrador over the last two weeks and remain out of control. Over the last 36 hours, uh, things have changed. Uh, Premier Andrew Furry told reporters on Sunday, we were predicting that we could manage this. However, with the wind change, we are afraid there will be significant smoke impact. This is dynamic evolution situation as all fires are, but we can't wait for the last minute. We have to act now. Furry said his government issued the state of emergency not to create panic, but to ensure the province was able to better manage the uh, quickly changing situations. So fires have been burning for close to two weeks in central Newfoundland, aided by strong winds. The Paradise Lake fire is estimated to be more than 6,500 hectares, which is around 16,000 acres. And the Bay uh, uh, fire is more than 5,000 hectares, which is around 12,000 acres. So large wildfires are relatively rare in the Atlantic province, but a summer of dry, intense heat has left its forest vulnerable to men's and fast-moving place. So that's uh, what we have in Canada. If we look at other regions like Lincolnshire, uh, wildfires double as hot weather continues. Uh, fire chiefs in Lincolnshire have urged people not to light campfires or barbecues in the countryside after the number of wildfires more than doubled. So Lincolnshire Fire and Rescue Service said crews had dealt with 607 wildfires between April and July. That's up from 286 over the same period last year. These include crop, grassland and woodland blazes, uh, fire officials said. People are also urged not to throw cigarettes out of car windows and to dispose of glass bottles properly. Um, Chief Fire Officer Mark Baxter said the weather continues to be hot and dry with no signs of this changing in the coming weeks. Uh, We are asking the public to please consider whether any kind of fire outdoors um, is appropriate. In most cases, uh, they are not. We would ask people not to camp, not to have campfires or barbecue in the countryside. Mr. Ba- Baxter said he wanted to, uh, he want people to enjoy our beautiful countryside, but said it does not bring risks because everything is tinder dry. It all comes down to common sense. So that was um, the fire risks in Lincolnshire. We also have highest risk of any wildfires becoming a survey in parts of Devon. So people are being urged to be vigilant amid uh, warnings any wildfires could become severe in the coming days. 
uh, Devon and Somerset Fire Service said people should not have any countryside barbecues and should take extreme care when putting out cigarettes. So the main focus is on barbecues and uh, cigarettes. So the Met Office level 5 warning on the fire severity index FSI covers much of Dartmoor along with areas um, of Lyington. The warning is in place for Friday and Saturday. Uh, temperatures are forecasted to remain high with no rain expected across the southwest. In some um, cases, authorities can restrict or suspend access to areas most at risk when a level 5 warning is in place. Um, Devon County Council and Dartmoor National Park have been asked if they plan to do so. Earlier this week, barbecues and open fires were temporarily banned in Dartmoor National Park. The fire service said it attended 322 fires in in the open in July, up from a five-year average of 272. So that was that. So even in the news, um, Sharif, you know, we can see that exceptional yes. risks of wildfires could sweep across Britain even this weekend because of the temperatures rising. Yeah, indeed. And we're seeing that it's going to be a very dry and even... Yesterday on Sky News, um, the Thames Water CEO was talking about how mm-hmm. um, we're having drought and yeah. the lack of rain. So we're going to see this dry spell for a long time and we need to be more cautious. One, um, two elements that I, would, I wanted to touch on on this topic is one is the um, impact of wildfires on health and, and, wi- and the wider environment. And two... The second part was the benefits of wildfires. So I'll come on to the benefits in um, in a bit. But the World Health Organization describes a wildfire as a an unplanned fire that burns in a natural area, such as a forest grassland or a prairie. And wildfires, while often caused by human activity, can also be caused by natural phenomenon such as lightning and they can happen at any time or anywhere. And they go further to say that 50% of wildfires recorded, it is not known how they started. So that's interesting fact in itself that about 50%, we can't get to the bottom of how the wildfire started. So they go on to say the risk of wildfires increases in extreme dry conditions such as drought, which we're seeing currently in the UK and during high winds, the wildfire can disrupt transportation, communication, power, gas services, and water supply. They could also lead to deterioration of air quality, loss of property, crops, resources, animals, and people. So the World Health Organization puts wildfire and volcanic activity in the same category, and they say that it's affected over 6.2 million people between 1998 and 2017 with almost 2,400 attributable deaths worldwide from suffocation, injuries and burns. But the size and frequency of wildfires are growing due to climate change. So the hotter and drier conditions are drying our ecosystem and increasing the risk of wildfires. So wildfires are simultaneously impact weather and the climate by increasing 
of releasing large quantities of carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and fine particulate matter into the atmosphere, resulting in air pollution. So resulting air pollution can cause a range of health issues, including respiratory cardiovascular problems. Another significant health effect of wildfires is on mental health and psychological well-being. You can imagine if you are affected by those wildfires, your house, your crops, your um, livestock, everything being affected, killed, or having to lose everything in your house um, because of wildfire that's uncontrollable, how devastating that could be to your own mental health and um, um, and um, psychological health. So, you know, beyond fatal, fatal, fatalities, wildfire and the resulting smoke ashes can cause burns and injuries, eye, nose, throat, and lung irritation, decreased lung function, including coughing and wheezing, pulmonary inflammation, bronchitis. So the list goes on in terms of cardiovascular and um, respiratory problems that um, wildfires can cause. Mm. So wildfires releases significant amount of mercury in the air, which can lead to impairment of speech, hearing, walking, muscle, weaknesses and vision problems for the people of all ages. So this is quite an interesting topic and in the sense that we can see the impact that it has and we must take a step back and commend um, the fire brigade, like Joanne said earlier in the call, for the work that they do because they are the ones that are running towards the fire to help save lives and prevent people from getting injured and getting um, illnesses from those um, diseases. Absolutely, um, Sharif. You know, they're, they're risking their lives, you know, just to save us and the wildfires. So a, a big uh, applause to all these firefighters as well. They're doing a great job. So, no, that you're absolutely right. And we're seeing that in the current situation where you know, we've seen our frontline services step up and deal with crises in the most admirable way. So we had it with the NHS where they were dealing with the COVID and everything, and now we're seeing it with the um, with the um, uh, the fire services with the wildfires that they're tackling on top of the domestic fires and everything else that they deal with, you know, with accidents on the road. They deal with quite a range of issues. You see the fire brigade on the scene of accidents, mm. of other things, not just fires. So one one area that I wanted to touch on is um, an article that I was reading from the National Geographic where it talks about the ecological benefits of fire. So while wild wildfires are destructive forces but they can occur naturally because of this certain plants and animal have evolved to depend on the periodic wildfire for ecological balance prescribed uh, burns can mimic the benefit of wildfires while also lowering the risk with larger uncontrollable fires what it means is that there are certain plants and animals who benefits from the um, the fire so for example there are several plants who actually require fire to move along their life cycle 
for example, certain seeds from many pine trees are enclosed in pine cones that are covered in pitch, which must be melted by fire for the seed to be released. Other tree plants and flowers will set like certain types of lilies also require fire for seed germination. Even some animals depend on fire. The sole food source for the endangered um, carnivore blue butterfly caterpillar is a plant called um, the wild lupin. Wild lupin requires fire to maintain an ecosystem balance in which it can thrive. Wild, um, without the fire, the lupins do not um, do not flourish and the caterpillars cannot consume enough food and undergo metamorphosis and become butterfly. So we can see that wild, um, those fires are, can be man-made, but it does happen in, uh, in nature also where nature can benefit from those where certain trees and animals will benefit from wildfires, certain um, won't germinate. Um, Asim, any, anything else you would like to add? in terms of wildfires and how it can be prevented. Absolutely, Sharif. So actually I have 10 tips um, to prevent wildfires. So, you know, nationally, almost nine out of 10 wildfires are caused by humans. Um, these preventable wildfires threaten lives, as we said, property and our precious natural resources. So for our listeners, whether you are a first time visitor or public land pro, you play a valuable role in preventing wildfires and protecting our natural sources, uh, resources. So first um, a tip is that check weather and drought conditions. Pay uh, close attention to weather and drought conditions, which can affect the uh, flammability of vegetation. Avoid any activities that involve fire or sparks when it's hot, dry and windy. If the conditions are right, choose non-flammable options. Remember, conditions and local restrictions should guide your decision for any fire-related activities such as uh, building a campfire, operating equipment or off eroding uh, on dry grass or burning derbers. Second, build your campfire in an open location and far from flammables. Uh, many people, you know, love to go camping and enjoy the warmth and light from a campfire, but your campfire can cause wildfires if you do not build and extinguish it properly. Uh, so how to build a, a safe campfire? Make sure you uh, select a flat, open location away from flammable materials such as logs, brush and decaying leaves and needles. Uh, scrape away grass, leaves and needles down the uh, mineral soil. Uh, cut wood in short length, pile it within the areas and then light the fire. Stay with your fire at all times. Extinguish it completely before leaving. A third, douse your campfire until it's cold. Uh, make sure your campfire is completely out by following these steps below, which are douse the fire with at least one bucket of water, stir it, add another bucket of water, stir it again. Your campfire should be cold to the touch before you leave. And fourth is keep vehicles off dry grass. That's an interesting one. If you're off-roading, remember that your exhaust can reach temperatures of 1000 plus degrees. 
so avoid drink, driving or parking over uh, dry grass. Uh, five is uh, regularly maintain your equipment and vehicle. Vehicles and equipment can shoot sparks from the exhaust, particularly vehicles that haven't received regular maintenance. Whether it's a car, truck or of highway vehicle, make sure your vehicle is current on all mechanical checkups and suit, suited for off-road adventures. Um, six is practice vehicle safety. Carry a shovel, bucket and a fire extinguisher in your vehicle to put out fires. Off-highway vehicles must have a spark arrestor. You should also carry a bucket, uh, but you could also use a helmet or anything else to carry water. A seventh is check your tires, bearings and um, axles on your trailer. Uh, if you are towing a trailer, please remember to do a maintenance check to ensure the tires are not worn, the bearings and axles are greased and safety chains are properly in place and not dragging on the ground. Eight is keep sparks away from dry vegetation. Make sure you never operate equipment that... Um, Produce sparks near dry vegetation. Always clear the area around vegetation. Always clear the area around your workspace. This area should be even larger if it's windy and dry. Uh, create uh, clearings where all flammables have been removed. The width or radius of the clearings will vary with the conditions from you know 10 to 25 feet. Ninth is check conditions and regulations before you use fireworks or consider safe alternatives. You know, fireworks start over 19,000 fires and send over 9,000 people to ER each year in the United States alone. So check your local, federal, state and city regulation before using fireworks. States and counties, uh, counties and cities may have different laws and regulations. So a little bit of research could save you the cost of improper fireworks use penalty or worse the cost of fighting a wildfire uh, tent which is cautiously cautiously burn debris and never when it's windy or restricted so some people burn um, trash leaves agriculture waste or other materials so if you plan to burn uh, debris on your private property make sure you have water nearby such a such as a garden hose and never burn anything if it's windy that's the most important part never burn anything um, if it's windy once your burn is completed be sure to mop up the ashes with water and st stirring wildfires often start from holdovers debris piles that were not extinguished days or even weeks after they were burned there may be burning restrictions in your area, so contact your local fire authority for more information and debris burning tips. So that, these were um, 10 important points for our listeners. I hope you have taken some uh, a note of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned um, fireworks in there because I was talking about fireworks and how uh, the Bristol Balloon Festival, they've stopped the yeah, fireworks this year, which yeah, is yeah. the highlight of the show. Mm -hmm. um, 
dear listeners, before we end this segment, we have a brief um, video or voice um, that His Holiness Hazrat Mizar Masrur Ahmed, Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah be his helper, was asked a question during a Q&A session about the importance of fighting climate change. And we know um, from this morning show that one of the um, causes of these dry spells that is increasing the risk of wildfires is climate change and the impact that it has. So please let's listen to um, His Holiness, um, Mr. Masur Ahmed, um, answer to that question. My question is, how important is it for Ahmadi Muslims to fight climate change? Very important. You should try to avoid using your car while traveling for a short distance. Either walk to that place or use bicycle. Hmm? Right? Cycling is good for your health as well. Secondly, every Ahmadi should make it a point that he should plant two trees every year. This is how you can fight climate change. If you are here, if we have 30,000 Ahmadis here in the UK or more, then every year we plant 60,000 trees. If not possible here, then those who travel to other countries, they can plant trees there. So in this way, we can help control climate change. So this is the, um, we're approaching the end of our show, dear listeners. Um, this was Hazrat Mizar Masur Ahmed talking about the importance of um, everyone to tackle climate change. And I, I've never heard that myself um, before, but the advice is to plant two trees every year by every amity. And that advice alone can help improve our climate. So we're now approaching the end of the show and I'm only left to thank all of our listeners for joining us on this Thursday, 11th of August and also thank all of our guests. We had two very interesting topics. The first one, euthanasia and should the UK legalize um, or pass a law for it. We had some very good, interesting views on both sides of the of the aisle, so we had Nathan with us this morning who um, worked for Assisted Dying Campaign for Humanist UK, where he's very much for the idea of legalization of euthanasia in the UK, and uh, his points was well made and um, really good food, food for thoughts. And also we had Murabi Imam um, Farooq Arshad with us who gave us the Islamic view on uh, euthanasia and end of life and the importance of life and also we ended the show um the segment with alistair thompson who's also a spokesman for care not killing and gave us the his view of his organization on the value of life and and his opinion on euthanasia and we just ended the the second segment now on wildfires a international crisis where we had joanne with us from the london fire brigade who gave us some good advice and if any of our listeners missed it please 
bear that in mind. If you see fire, a fire or you come across anything that may cause it, please dial 999 and um, get help. And the fire brigade will help you or guide you to the next step and they'll come to, um, to your aid. And with that, I'd like to thank our producer, Malahat and Anissa, um, for today's show. Our researchers, Barira, Hanya, Halima Ahmed, Saliha Ahmed, and Waki Khan. And our tech, as always, on hand to help us um, throughout the morning show. Um, Akib and Zakala, thank you for all your help. And my um, live uh, presenter this morning, Asim, thank you for, for your help and um, your guide today. If there's any, there's been any shortcoming from our end, please forgive us. And... We, inshallah, will see you um, next tomorrow for our Friday morning breakfast show. If not, may the peace and blessing of Allah be with you. And inshallah, we'll, um, you'll hear us again next Thursday morning.